So as we come to God's word, let us bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you once again for the word that you have given us, that you have revealed yourself to us, especially and finally in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you too, Lord, for the written word. We thank you for those who have written it by in the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And we pray now, Lord, that you will open our hearts and minds and wills to this word, that we may be obedient to it and serve you. In Jesus Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So today we come to the last or final session of the series on Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians. In these paragraphs Paul gives us his closing instructions to the Christian church which he founded. He dwells on so many different topics that it is hard to find a coherent thread running through them all. And he signs off the letter with a number of important matters that he wishes to share with the people. Nevertheless, to help us appreciate the things that concern the Apostle and learn from them truths for our own Christian lives and the mission of our church, I suggest three titles which I think cover what he is saying. Now you'll find the passage on page 202 of the Pew Bibles. And I hope, can you put it on the screen as well, Paul, please? That would be very helpful. The first of the headings that I've chosen is called The Ordering of Relationships Within the Community, verses 12 to 15. The second is A Life in Communion with God, verses 16 to 18. And the third, Discerning the Work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's first concern in these closing verses is the relationship between the leaders in the community and the rest of the church should be of the very highest order. He appeals to the whole fellowship to respect and esteem them. Verses 12 and 13. We appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. In other words, they were to consider their worth, to appreciate their value. Now Paul is referring mainly to the elders, those appointed to oversee the affairs of the church. As you will, if you read the book of the Acts of the Apostles, you will see that Paul finishes his work of founding a new church in a new area by appointing elders to continue to look after them. They were the official office bearers, 
and always in Paul's churches they were composed of a group of people not just one but a number so in the apostolic times leadership in the local churches was always carried out by a small team of people who shared out the tasks to be fulfilled according to the skills and the gifts and the calling available within the community. Now their work of preaching, teaching, administration, serving the needs of the congregation, directing the church's mission and other tasks was of course accountable to Jesus Christ who was the one supreme and only head. And the churches lived their lives as a fellowship of brothers and sisters all on an equal footing under the governance of Jesus. Reminds me a little bit about a story, uh, a true story, of somebody who was um, conducting a a meeting or even a retreat for a group of clergy and also lay people. And he thought that he would try an experiment with this group. So he said at the beginning of his talk, or one of his talks, he said, I would like all the clergy here, please, if you would stand. And so the clergy duly got up and stood. And then he said, Now I would like also to ask all the lay people here to stand. Upon which the clergy all sat down and the laity stood. And the point of the story is, of course, that the clergy should have remained standing because they are also part of the laity. They are part of the laos of God from which the word laity comes. Now in the case of the Thessalonian church, it would seem as though there was some tension between the elders and the rest of the community. It's not altogether apparent um, why that should have been said, or why it might have happened or been uh, a reality of that church. We may conjecture, but it is only a conjecture, that it could have been that the ordinary members of the church thought that they were receiving unnecessary criticism rather than constructive discussion in the reproach they were given. We ask you to respect those who labour among you, had charge over you in the Lord, and admonish you. So they may have resisted the rather harsh authority that was being shown. But this is only a conjecture. But for whatever reason, there obviously was perhaps some tension. The church is given the task of admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak and being patient with all. Verse 14. 
I think what Paul has in mind here is the calling to be alongside those who are perhaps timid or apprehensive or lacking in self-confidence, those who are overwhelmed by problems, in order that no one needs to feel alone, undervalued or inadequate in meeting the challenges of life. Going on to his injunction for being patient, being patient is the opposite of being short-tempered with those deemed to have failed for any reason. And it occurred to me that maybe this is a calling for a church to institute a scheme for monitoring occasionally the spiritual health of the whole community and the well-being of individuals within that community. Then immediate action can be taken if and when there are failures or predicaments either within the whole church or with individuals. They are not, as it were, buried under the carpet, but they are brought to light and dealt with properly in the Spirit of the Lord. The final injunction in this particular section of Paul's uh, commands to the church is that retaliation, that is to say repaying evil for evil, should not be known among the members of the church. This echoes Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. I wonder if you've ever thought, why the right cheek? Well, the answer I think is given in the culture of the day. If you are right-handed and you want to strike somebody's cheek, you have to do it with the back of your hand. Of course, if you're left-handed, then you strike the right cheek with the back of your hand. But the back of the hand used as a way of striking somebody was a supreme insult in those days. Peter in his first letter affirms that Christ, who when he was abused, did not return abuse. And the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was designed not to increase revenge, but to limit revenge. But Jesus abolishes it altogether. And this was probably the first time in human history in which no retribution was demanded of a group of people. And the the true cause for practicing, of course, was in the example of Jesus himself. So no retaliation, no eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, no revenge. The doing good, verse 15, means pursuing what is beneficial or constructive in the circumstances. Revenge always creates 
a vicious circle. For neither party in a dispute is satisfied until one has finally managed to conquer the other. But not responding to violence with violence, but rather with care and consideration, though often against our natural inclination, creates a virtuous circle. The determination to win at all costs is cut off at its source. So something on arranging the life of a church together. Secondly, a life in communion with God, verses 16 to 18. Paul continues by showing how an ideal Christian existence is possible. The three commands that he gives in verses 16 and 17, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, is specifically backed up by the following statement, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And we thought quite a bit about rejoicing and thanking the Lord and praying without ceasing as we've been singing this morning. In other words, God desires us to do these things because he knows that they are enormously to our benefit. But rejoicing always and giving thanks in all circumstances seems very hard demands. Supposing that we have just lost a close relative or friend or being diagnosed with a serious malignant disease or we have been made redundant or our children or our grandchildren have failed to get the grades at A-level or O-level that they were hoping for. And we are told, nevertheless, to rejoice and to give thanks. How is that possible? Well, I think that Paul does not mean the always to mean without ceasing. What he does mean is that the anxiety evoked by the bad news that we have received is put into a much wider context. It is to allow the good news, like Peter's statement in his letter, cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. To allow that statement to overrule the bad to put it, as it were, in the wider perspective of what God does for us and is for us. Paul says of his own circumstances, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He also says, we boast in our sufferings. And Jesus, on the eve of the crucifixion, tells his disciples, No one will take your joy 
from you. Testings of our faith will undoubtedly come. The confidence in God that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, is supported here by the instruction to pray without ceasing if we are in regular communion with our Heavenly Father, then things are indeed in the proper perspective. Pray without ceasing does not mean literally all the time, particularly if we are driving a car not to close our eyes, for example. Rather, it signifies practicing the presence of God meditating habitually on his presence as a holy, life-giving, caring God. Finally and briefly, discerning the work of the Holy Spirit, verses 19 to 20. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So the last part of Paul's instructions comprise two negative commands. And do not quench the spirit means literally, and we have been thinking uh, in a negative sense about the destructive power of fire, but in this context, fire is a good thing. Do not pour water on the fire of the Spirit. It's exactly what it means. Do not quench the Spirit. And do not despise the words of the prophets. In the early church, there was undoubtedly a certain amount of prophesying going on. People speaking prophecies, speaking words of wisdom, words of knowledge and so on. You can find and read all about it in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1, pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts and especially that you may prophesy. And he goes on to say, those who prophesy speak to other people for their building up and encouragement and consolation. So, one might still expect the Holy Spirit is still with us. The Holy Spirit still exercises the same ministry in Christ's church. Do not pour water on the fire of the Spirit. Do not despise the words of the prophets, as long as, of course, they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, we are to test everything by holding fast to what is good and abstaining from every form of evil. In other words, we are to test the words that are spoken in prophecy or words of wisdom and knowledge and so on. There are two quick final thoughts and they are both keys to fulfilling Paul's teaching. 
acknowledging the power of the Holy Spirit in the church's community and finally Paul's saying the one who calls you is faithful and he will do this if we know the power of the Spirit then all these things that Paul has inspired us to do encouraged us to do will be taken care of because the Spirit is dwelling within us and is active within us. And the one who calls you is faithful and he will do this. He will oversee this. He will do this or he cannot be the God whom God whom God, the God whom Jesus has revealed. But we know that he is. Amen.